Well, hey, everybody, welcome back uh, to the series that we're working through called Going Beyond Our Current Mind. And we've been working through the Gospel of Mark, taking a look at the life of Jesus, his teachings, the things uh, that he did, and the way that he approached things. And we're getting a good chunk of the way through. Today, we're going to be in Mark chapter 8. And I don't know if you started to notice Jesus' approach yet. And it's actually really remarkable what Jesus does and what he doesn't do. Have you noticed that Jesus hasn't showed up to people and said, you know, the real problem is you need to clean up your act. You need to fix your behavior and fit in better. That'll solve all of your problems. In fact, that's not what Jesus does at all. And really, the one time we looked at uh, where he really talked about rules and laws, the thing that he demonstrated was that the rules and laws actually don't go far enough. And the people that were trying the hardest to live by the rules actually weren't being transformed in their lives. What we have seen Jesus do is teach in parables, to teach people difficult things in sort of cryptic messages that they have to really think about. He was casting out demons, demons that uh, lined up with systems of violence, oppression, empty religion. He fed people that were hungry because he had compassion and demonstrated the compassion of God. He was healing people that had diseases that were hurting them physically, but also hurting them emotionally, leaving them outside of community. And he welcomed people back into community. He calmed storms and brought peace and order where there was only chaos. It's actually quite amazing what Jesus does and what he doesn't do. And I wonder if we really read the way that Jesus approaches things and we see the things that he does demonstrating the real love of God, instituting a system of grace and forgiveness, helping people to come back into community, to tear down walls and boundaries that people have set up between themselves and between God. I wonder if we would just change the entire way that we look at things. In fact, it's kind of amazing that when we do really just read about how Jesus approaches things, that a lot of times in Christianity, those of us who claim to follow Jesus, we've done almost the complete opposite. We have become people who say, hey, come to church and here's all the things that are right and wrong. Here's the rules. And if you can live by them, then you'll fit in better and you'll be part of our community. And we wonder why it is that so many people don't want to have any part of that. And the reason is because it's just so superficial. It's just so obvious, but also empty. That many of us have actually tried that and we've realized that sometimes we've tried really hard over and over and over to be something or to do certain things and we failed. Or we've achieved what we set out to achieve and we've realized that it's empty, it's hollow. A lot of people have realized that that just leads to hypocrisy because we try to create a certain image that people can see That's all on the outside, but it really isn't transformative at all. And I think a lot of us can understand why so many people don't want to be part of it because it doesn't have the real power to transform our lives or to transform our world. And yet we see in Jesus completely a different way. Dallas Willard calls uh, that approach of just uh, trying to change our behavior the gospel of sin management, where we convince ourselves that the problem is our behavior, and if we just work hard enough to fix it, if we just can get everybody uh, to agree and then live a certain way, all our problems will be solved. But that's not the gospel of Jesus. It's not the gospel, the, the good news that Jesus taught that goes much, much deeper. And so today we come to a text uh, in the Gospel of Mark that's really a a hinge in the book um, that, that really gets at the heart of what Jesus is teaching, what he's offering, and what he calls people to. 
In Christianity, there's a lot of different ways we might describe what it is to be a Christian. At the core, though, it's following Jesus. And here this morning, we're going to come to a passage where Jesus, in a pretty straightforward way, but a really difficult way, talks about what it looks like to really follow him and to engage in deep spiritual transformation. He's going to set out for us what the actual map is for spiritual transformation what it looks like for us to engage in something that is really transformative. So here's what's been happening. I talked about it. We've been seeing Jesus teaching parables, casting out demons, healing people, uh, feeding people, calming storms. And the passage just before the one that we're going to talk about today, uh, Jesus asks his disciples, who do you think that I am? And they respond that, well, a lot of people say that you're uh, a prophet, uh, you're, you're maybe um, another version of a prophet that we've seen before, or even John the Baptist that we saw earlier in this series in the book of Mark. And then, you know, you kind of have this realization. They're saying people are realizing that you're a good teacher and that you're speaking with authority and that you're calling people to a different way of life like the prophets do. And then he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter comes and says, you're the Messiah. And Jesus warns him, don't tell anybody that. The Messiah, it means you're the, you're the real king. You're not just a prophet. You're a prophet. You're a teacher. You're a rabbi. But you are the one who God is sending to make all things right. You are going to be in charge. And why does Jesus tell him to keep that a secret? Well, because the Jews already have a king. That's insurrection. That's basically, if you start announcing that, saying, I'm here to overthrow the government, the people that are in charge politically and religiously, and that's what gets you killed. And we'll see that. So Jesus says, be careful, because once we let that out, once we start proclaiming that, there's going to be big trouble. And Jesus then takes the opportunity to really teach what that means and what that is going to look like. So this is Mark chapter 8, and I'm going to start reading in verse 31. He, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed And after three days rise again, he spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Okay, remember, Jesus is just, or Peter has just proclaimed, Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are the rightful king. Then Jesus teaches that he's going to have to be rejected, suffer, and die. And Peter says, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's go back to what I just said. You're the king. You're the one who's going to have victory, not defeat. And Jesus comes back and rebukes him. And this is the one time where Jesus uh, uses this word for a human being, calls him Satan, which literally means uh, the accuser. And why? He says, because when you're talking like this, you have the concerns of human, humans, human beings, humanity, not of how God thinks and God operates. And I am teaching you now how God is working and what is actually the pattern for you to follow if you'll follow me, the way that your world ought to work. Now understand what Jesus has just said, why Peter is so upset. And before we jump on Peter and say, oh, how could you miss it? Jesus is predicting his death and his resurrection, and you need to go with it. I think pretty much all of us can identify with Peter and his response. In fact, if we're going to take the same call that Jesus calls us to, or even entertain it to follow him, 
And he teaches this, I'm going to have to suffer and I'm going to have to be rejected and be crucified. If we're going to actually say, man, I got to decide if I'm willing to follow that, most of us probably would respond very much the way that Peter did. Imagine, for example, you're a PhD student. You're working on your thesis. You've poured months and years into studying and working towards uh, this, this great discovery and the, the writing, the book that you're putting together, that you're going to change the way people think about a certain topic. And imagine, imagine that your supervising professor that you've been working comes to you and says, this thesis is going to fail. The committee that meets is going to reject you. And in fact, they're going to reject you so much that you're going to be humiliated. You're going to be kicked out of academia. Nobody's going to ever want to work with you again. Your ideas are going to fail utterly. But then you're going to find work that is even more meaningful. What do you do? Do you say, yeah, let's go for it? I think some of us would stop and say, oh, maybe we just need to rethink the thesis. Maybe we need to tinker with some things, go in a slightly different direction so that we don't have to go through all the rejection and the failure. Imagine you're at work and you set out with maybe a group of coworkers on a big project that you think is going to change the entire business, the entire way people uh, do something or see something, that you think it could be wildly successful, and one day your boss comes to you and says, this project we've been pouring our entire lives onto is going to bankrupt us. And there's people who are going to think that, that we are terrible at business and they're never going to want to work with us. We are going to lose absolutely everything, our money, our reputation, our business, the way that we do everything, but I think in that we might find a better way to move forward. Imagine that you're part of a campaign for somebody who wants to become president or prime minister. And you think that they can change the entire world. You think their ideas are great and they can, they can bring about uh, the kind of change in a, a culture, in a society, in a country that can bring about all the goodness that we need. And so you go out and you're telling people about it and you're following them around and you're asking for donations and you're building this campaign and building this campaign and building it up. And then the, 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 that person comes to you and says, you know, we're going to lose this election. We're going we're gonna to be rejected. Our ideas are going to be so rejected. It's not even that we're going to lose, but I, I could be arrested for the things that I'm saying. And more than that, they might even convict me and put me to death because of the kind of campaign that we are running. But that's how we're going to affect change. Just imagine being in any of those positions. And when you stop and say, why don't we then change direction now? Why would we continue to go this way? If you're saying we're going to fail, we're going to be humiliated, we're going to get hurt, we're going to lose everything, and we might even die. You're saying you're going to die? Why would we keep going on the trajectory that where we are going? And Jesus is teaching, this is actually the pattern that we need to go. Now you understand why Peter would try and rebuke him. And Jesus comes back and say, I get it. That's how human beings think. We all want to go a different, none of us want to fail like that. We don't want to be humiliated. We don't want to be hurt. We certainly don't want to die. But you're thinking in human terms, human concerns. And I'm trying to teach you the way of God. It is a deep and profound call. It's a different one. What Jesus is going to teach is that you have to die before you can really live. If you really want to live, you don't go around this or away from it. You go straight through it. If you really want to live, you first need to die. 
Jesus fleshes it out, and I want to talk about that. Verse 34, he says, So then he calls the crowds to him along with his disciples. So now he brings in more people to talk about this concept. He says, Whoever wants to be my disciple, my apprentice, if you want to live the way that I live and do the things that I do, you must deny, they must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now Jesus in some sense is predicting his own death on a cross, but then he's inviting people to come with him on a deeper level. A cross is not the way that someone would normally die or even that the Romans would normally execute someone. In some of the translations you read that when Jesus is crucified on the cross, there's two men, one on either side of him. Some of the translations say that they're robbers, but a better translation is that they're revolutionaries. Crosses were a Roman method of execution that were reserved for revolutionaries. Not your average criminals, not people who stole stuff. It was the way of making an example of someone. If there was a leader of a movement that was threatening their government, threatening their way of life, that's when they would crucify someone in order to publicly proclaim that their way of thinking and acting and their revolution is dead. Here's your leader. He dies. And if you keep following the way that he taught you, you will die too. When Jesus says you're going to have to deny yourself and take up your cross, he's inviting people to follow him in a revolution. Be a revolutionary. Choose a way of life that is so different that it threatens the, the evil, violent, oppressive way that, that our current situation calls people to live in. We are going to live completely different and in that, if enough of us come together, we can actually see change and transformation in this world. But you're going to have to come the way of a revolutionary. Come the way of the cross. Take up your own cross. Be involved in something that is that profound and is that risky and dangerous. In verse 35, he continues to flesh out what that looks like. He says, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? So in these few verses, uh, the words life and soul are in Greek. When this is originally written in Greek, they're all the same words, talking about the same thing. And translations to make it make sense to our ears in English, um, there's a bit of a differentiation. But it is the same word. We're talking about what it is to really be a person, the, the depth of who you are, your life or your soul. It speaks to a person's distinct identity or personhood. It's the idea in Scripture that we get all the way back from uh, the story of Adam when God creates a man out of the dust. Just speaking of kind of the, the physical, earthly, biological stuff that make us up. And then God breathes his spirit into Adam. And it says he becomes a living being or a living soul. This is your authentic self, truly who you are. It's, it's not just one part of you, it's all the parts of you. Your physicality, your emotional uh, life, your spirit, your mind, all coming together to say, this is your unique personhood created by God. And we've seen how Jesus see this already in uh, the book of Mark and all the way through the scripture. We saw what that means uh, at Jesus' baptism, a number of weeks ago, something that we're all supposed to have the experience of when, when, when his father 
declares, this is my beloved son in whom I am greatly pleased. At a soul level, this is the identity. And here's what Jesus is teaching us. To live out of our, our true selves, deep and authentic, beloved by God, accepted by God, cherished by God. If you really want to live, if you want your soul then you need to lose yourself. That word lose here in this passage literally means to kill or destroy. You need to kill or destroy yourself if you really want to live. What does that mean? What is it that needs to die? Jesus talks about this in a number of places. The Apostle Paul picks it up and talks about it, sometimes with different language, different words, uh, but the same context. He's building on what Jesus is talking about, what it is that we need to put to death. What do we need to lose in terms of our life so that we can actually live our lives, so that we can live to be our true selves? There's a lot of language that people use to talk about what it is that needs to die. Some talk about it in terms of our false self, or uh, our image, the image that we create, the word that maybe most of us might um, most identify with, the language that we would use, is ego, our ego. And that's not language that Jesus necessarily had or used, but uh, in terms of the concept of the way that we might think of it uh, and connect it with what Jesus was talking about, the ego might be the best way uh, for us to think about it. It is the version of ourselves that we build up and that we try and project into the world. It's uh, the self where we use things like education and performance and money and our social standing, our popularity, our body image, and whether people think that we're handsome or beautiful, even our uh, relational status and who we're dating or who we're married to or what our family looks like. All of these things that we try and use to build up an identity for ourselves that we project out into the world. Where people might look to us and say, oh, wow, there's so-and-so. And And they might uh, use to identify us things like uh, our job titles. Or they might think of us in terms of our socioeconomic status. Or any of the number of things that I just talked about. Oh, this is who I am. And we all try and build up a version of ourselves that gives us an identity and security and purpose. And most of those things, most of those things that we use to build up our false self, they're not bad things. They just don't go far enough. They, They can't really hold our true identity. They can't really be what we are. They're all a little bit fragile. They're passing. They're things that don't go deep enough. Our souls, however, our true selves, are the truest part of who we are, our authentic selves. And a healthy soul, if you're really living out of your true self, is one that is defined in its union with God and deep, intimate relationships with other people. And you can see how Jesus teaches those things over and over. Therefore, when he talks about the laws and the rules and people ask him, what's the most important thing? He talks about loving God with everything that we are and loving people. This is our, our true selves. Our true selves are, are that part of us deep within us that are connected with, in union with, in intimacy with God. And then the way that we treat other people flows out of that grace and acceptance and love And forgiveness that always brings us back, that provides us with true security and true peace. 
with a true sense of being loved extremely deeply. That is where we get a real foundation for how we can live as opposed to the fragile ego that sometimes we hold on to so tightly because we, we start to identify with that ego. And Jesus is saying, that's what needs to die if you really want to live. If you really want to be your true self, who you were created to be. If you want deep contentment and satisfaction, peace, joy, and love. Your false self or your ego just is not big enough or deep enough to hold your true identity. Instead, it's your union with God. It's hearing over and over and over, being reminded to the point where you really truly believe it and grasp onto it that you are God's beloved child. And there's nothing that can take that away. And from here, we can live a life of love, of growth, of transformation, of beauty, of seeing God in all areas of our lives. And so Jesus invites us into this paradox that is so difficult for us to, to really grasp that if you want to save your life, you need to lose it. You have to die before you can really live. You have to be able to let go of that which really isn't you so that you can live out who you really are. You can see why... Uh, the people who don't seem to fit in or measure up or have great impressive lives often much more readily accept Jesus than those who do. Because when we create a false self, the more successful that we are at it, the, the, the greater the temptation is to hold on to it. If we're the ones who, who, who seem to fit in religiously because we followed the rules that we've agreed on, if we fit in, it's so hard to give that up. If we have power, it's hard to give that up. If we have money, it's hard to give that up. If we have certain position, it's hard to give that up because we're convincing ourselves that these are the things that make us who we are, their identity. But for those of us who don't seem successful, who have failed, who have fallen short, who don't have anything to brag about, who don't seem impressive from human perspective, it's a lot easier to say, well, I don't have that much to grasp onto or hold onto. And this is the, the kind of backwards thinking. It's, it's the people that seem to have nothing that, that just identify with Jesus so much easier. And it's the people who seem to have built up this great life that reject Jesus and argue with Jesus and have a hard time with Jesus. Because they're the ones that have built up enough success that they want to hold on to it. And those that don't have it, grace just flows easier. It makes more sense. They recognize their need they're actually much closer to their true self because they're not holding on to some version of their false self. So interesting for us to learn and such a difficult lesson to learn because it's painful. That which we think is us, we don't want to put to death. We don't want to let go of. We don't want to get rid of. Here's some symptoms that uh, might help you to identify where your ego is. And when you're living out of your ego, what are some of the emotions or experiences that you might have that you might think are really you, but they're actually evidence that you're living out of this, this ego-driven way of living? We'll find that we'll be offended easily. 
And man, you see that in our culture, go on social media and you'll see how easily people are offended. Why does this happen? Because when we have to protect something that's fragile, anything that opposes us or kind of rocks the boat, we see as an attack, not just on something that we do or something that we have, but on our identity ourselves. And so we become so offended easily because we attach significance for our identity to the things that people might argue against or disagree with. We become judgmental of ourselves and others because the ego is fragile. And so we're always seeing what's wrong with us and what's wrong with other people. And we have to build more of a life and more of an ego. We have to build, 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 build. And so we become judgmental about what we don't have or what we aren't or what other people aren't. We become unforgiving. We become competitive. Everything has to be win-lose. And we start comparing, comparing, comparing. I, I am valuable or worthy if I'm better than somebody else at something, if I'm more successful, if I'm more moral, if I don't make the mistakes that they do. And we start to kill relationships because we're trying to build up our own ego by competing and comparing with other people. And ultimately, we get to discontentment. We get this life that even if we're really successful at building up this kind of version or image of ourselves, we realize it's empty and it doesn't bring happiness. We have very little self-confidence and self-esteem because everything we're trying to build our lives on is fragile. We find ourselves out of union from God and others. Our true souls, however, are at peace with things like truth, depth, authenticity. When we're living out of our true selves, we find a strength that learns to be okay when things aren't perfect or when we don't know everything. We don't always have to be right about everything. We don't have to fix everybody else. We don't have to compare to everybody else. We don't have to build up all these boundaries between us and people that threaten us because our true selves are much more confident. Our true selves know that, that you can't take away that which makes us really us. That God has inherently created us in his image to be loved and to live out of that love. There's nothing that can take that away. When you live out of that place, the more we live out of that place, the more confident and secure that we can be. And so the signs of the healthy soul become confidence in God and who he's created us to be, and therefore we find confidence in ourselves because God lives in us and through us. We become compassionate and empathetic. Instead of looking at other people as threats, we look at them as people to be loved. And when they fail or when they struggle, as opportunities to express the love that God has for us to them. Our lives are characterized by forgiveness and generosity, acceptance and contentment. Instead of always trying to project, protect a fragile ego, we realize that we have so much to give. We are secure, we're loved, we're accepted, we're forgiven, and therefore we can project that out into the world to other people rather than trying to always fight for ourselves. So what do we do? How do we, how do we live this out? I would say that what we need to try um, to be mindful of is recognizing our ego, but not identifying with it. So I want to see when I'm living in an egocentric way, when I'm living out of this image or this version of myself that isn't my true self. I want to be able to recognize it, but not identify with it. Which means I recognize when that is how I'm living, but I know that that's not really me. That's not the deep true self of who I am. And so we would move in the direction of truth instead of falsehood. The self that needs to die 
is one that is always trying to, to build a version of ourselves, even when it's not true. Our true selves uh, can rest in what is true. So here's a great place to start to recognizing our ego, but not identifying ourselves with our ego, is to say, uh, when are the times where I'm trying to make myself out to be something that's not quite true? So to watch out for times where you exaggerate Maybe you exaggerate your positives. Some of us, we also go the negative way. We exaggerate our negatives. That's also a false version of ourselves. But we exaggerate instead of just what is true about who we are or what we do or what we've done. We try and exaggerate to build another version of ourselves. Catch yourself on that. Be okay with living in truth. Same thing is true with comparisons. We don't need to compare ourselves to other people in order to have worth or value we can rest in the fact that we already have it. We don't need to spin things. There's so much of our culture in the news is spinning events to make us look a certain way, to make us look better, or to make someone else look worse. We don't need to spin things. Or to make excuses for why we've done things or not done things. Or even to pursue empty flattery. Oh, just build me up. Tell me how great I am. Oh, flatter me. Uh, about the money that I have, about the, the, the outward looks that, that people love, uh, about the, the social interactions that I have, about the work that I do. All of these things really are just trying to reinforce a version of ourselves that is not true and that inevitably is too fragile to hold our true selves. This is what Jesus says we need to deny or we need to kill so that we could save our lives. And he asks that profound questions question, what if, what if you gained the entire world? What if you were 100% successful in creating that image of yourself and you became rich and famous and popular and good looking and everybody thought that you were that and you lost who you really were? You didn't even know that at the core of who you are, you're God's beloved, loved and accepted something that nobody could ever take away from you. So instead, we embrace truth and we rest in the real promises of God who tells us who we are, his beloved children, loved, forgiven, accepted. And we build a life on that. That is what's secure. That is what will bring us confidence. That is what will, will bring us joy and contentment in the long run, though it is so hard to kill that image that we have created for ourselves. There's two tools uh, that really help us, powerful tools to live out our true identity, and they are prayer and service. Simply because of this, prayer is us giving our attention to God. Sometimes we think of prayer as all the things that we need to tell God. But prayer at its core is really a posture coming before God. And yes, we speak to him, we have requests to him, we praise him, but we also listen to him. And in the quiet moments, we need to allow God's voice to always remind us, you are my beloved child. And in you, I am greatly pleased. I cherish you. We need to spend time quiet moments to always allow ourselves to hear that voice, to remind us of who we really are and whose we really are, and to be reminded who we are not and what is not. And then service. Service is simply how we love other people, how we take that love, that reality drilled so deep down inside of us, and we let it flow out of us too. When I am loved, when I am forgiven, when, when I accept grace, I can 
freely offer those things to the people around us. This is the pattern for transformation. It's death and resurrection because everything that is valuable, everything that is really us, God will resurrect. But that which is really not us, that which threatens our true selves, needs to die, needs to be put away so that we can truly live. C.S. Lewis put uh, it this way in his book, Mere Christianity, and he gives a good analogy that I'll read for you as we close. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that these jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one that you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Let's pray together. And uh, as we do pray together, uh, I want to read to you this prayer written by Henry Nouwen uh, as he talks about what it truly looks like to follow Jesus. He says, Dear Lord, speak gently in my silence. When the loud outer noises of my surroundings and the loud inner noises of my fears keep pulling me away from you, help me to trust that you are still there even when I am, um, when I am unable to hear you. Give me ears to listen to your small soft voice saying, come to me, you who are overburdened, and I will give you rest, for I am gentle and humble of heart. Let that loving voice be my guide. Amen.